a museum director. Um, so I've, I kind of like to say I, I've seen things from both sides of the looking glass. Uh, and we're going to talk today about a project uh, that has become an initiative of the <coughs> Institute of Museum and Library Services on museums, libraries, and 21st century skills. Um, with me today are uh, Daryl Meadows and Jody Blankenship from the Kentucky Historical Society. And they're going to be talking, after I talk a little bit about the project and get us all sharing some information about who we are, why we're here, and uh, talk a little about the world in which we are operating as history organizations. Uh, Daryl and Jody will talk a little bit about what it's like to be in uh, a historical society grappling with some of these ideas as, as the Kentucky Historical Society is, is trying to figure out exactly the way it can be most effective in a 21st century skills environment, both internally and in the larger learning environment of the state, because as a state historical society, they have statewide responsibilities. Um, Jody is uh, the director of education at the Kentucky Historical Society and has worked in the field for about 12 years, and uh, including seven years at the Ohio Historical Society before coming to Kentucky. Daryl is the uh, director of research and interpretation and has um, his doctorate from Carnegie Mellon and has also worked at the Library of Congress and at the National Science Foundation. And um, as we were planning this, um, and as IMLS did our report with a group of experts from the field, we wanted to include in our report some case studies of museum projects and library projects that embody some of the skills that we're talking about. Because the whole idea around 21st century skills is not that this is not a, a, a place where museums and libraries haven't been for a long time. Indeed, they have been in this arena for a long time. And there are a lot of really powerful projects that are already going on. So we, we culled through our uh, funded projects. And, and it was really hard to settle on six that we were going to use as case studies. but. Uh, and, and represent the full scope of library and the full scope of museum work and different disciplines and so on. But uh, one of the six we picked was the main memory network. So uh, seeing Steve Bromage in the exhibit hall yesterday, I, I kind of zeroed in on him and uh, asked him if he would also join our conversation uh, and to talk a little bit about how this is working on the ground in another state historical society uh, that has been uh, working on a statewide project that involves new technologies, uh, a central repository, and a whole distributed communi uh, community network. So that's, I'm just setting the context for our conversation today. But what I'd like to do in, in starting um, is ask you, how many of you have seen this? How many of you have not seen this before? Okay, all right. So we're going to do a combination of uh, a presentation and I hope conversation around this. What this slide shows are the, the current elements or the, the initial elements of the project, which was a policy report about uh, a national conversation that we're having around 21st century skills that's easiest to summarize as uh, 
the world of the Global Knowledge Society. Um, and then the centerfold of this report, which is always the sexiest part of any publication, right? And that's where we have what we affectionately called our heat map, and we'll talk a little more about this later, which is a way for a, an individual library or museum to see where it stands in a larger context of 21st century skills. And then we also have an online version of the, of the self-assessment tool. So, and I'm gonna just, we're gonna start with some audience participation here. But the first thing I'm gonna ask is not on this, which is shout out, or how many of you are the directors or CEOs of an, of an history organization? How many of you are the historians or researchers or curators? All right. And how many of you are educators? Of course, we're all educators, right? How many of you are in other, uh, are webmasters or other positions? All right. What did I, what I, did I leave out? What are some of your roles in your institutions? Just shout them out. Institutional advancement. Ah. Development. Development. Communications. Communications. Exhibition development. Exhibition development, great. All right, well thank you. Uh, we're gonna, because we've got different perspectives at the table too and um, we're hoping that not, as I said, without uh, taking up the full time with a presentation, we can really start asking some of the tough questions that a report like this can, uh, can inspire or instigate in a particular institutional setting. But first, let's start with the larger world. So now I'm gonna, you know, we're in the broad world. Um, if you could shout, think about the last 30 years. What are some of the big societal changes that have happened in the last 30 years. Just shout out a few, just to get your voices going here. The internet. Internet. Cell phones. Cell phones. Personal computers. Personal computers. Social networking. Diversification of the workforce. Okay, diversification of the workforce, global work, global workforce? Globalization. Globalization. Demographic shifts. Any other? Digitization. Digitization. Climate change. Would that be? Any other? Any other changes in in learning that you can think about? I mean, these are all great. These are all great, and and every single one of them, I think, was sort of in the back of our minds as we were working, as we were working on this project. Okay, let me let me go to another question. So now you are thinking about the audiences and communities that you serve. What are some of the skills you'd like them to have that might be needed to address these changes? So now, some, a lot of the changes that you mentioned had to do with technology, but some of them like demographic changes, globalization, social media, um, they have to do with either behaviors or larger forces. Certainly, uh, shifts in immigration would be another big one. So what are some of the skills you would hope that your audiences, your communities, would be able to get from you to address these societal changes? Creativity. Hmm? Creativity. Creativity. Relevance. Relevance. Do you want to say a little more about that? What, what, how would you define that? 
So you're, you're linking what you have and what you're offering to something that might be on somebody's mind uh, in the present day. Analytical abilities. Analytical abilities, absolutely. I was in, I don't know, were any of you in the Radical Trust session this morning and this whole notion of the avalanche of information surrounding each one of us right now and the importance of sort of uh, in analyzing information so you know what, what's what to trust and what's not trustable. Anything else? Any other skills? Communication. Communication. Community engagement. Community engagement. How about civics? <laughs> As we approach the election. Um, okay. And with demographic changes, what are some of the things that, that, what are some of the skills and stories that history museums have to share when we are dealing uh, in a world of great demographic changes? Cross-cultural perspective. Yeah, cross-cultural. Historical perspective, cross-cultural perspectives. Yeah, we, we're actually funding a project with the International Coalition of Museums of Conscience at, a, at something like 13 history museums around the country around dialoguing. You know, just techniques facilitating dialogues among community audiences about his, taking historical issues around immigration into, into the present. Anything else that is on, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, multilingual skills. So then the question is, how intentional are history museums currently in helping the audi your audiences develop those skills? What would you say? Where, what are some of the, what are some of the um, wins? What are some of the positive things happening? And where are some of the opportunities in your view? Anybody want to? Yeah. Reflection spaces and ways to share their impressions. Great. Reflection spaces and ways to share impressions. I'm doing this because we're recorded. We're being recorded. Yeah. And you spoke about programs. I'm that you that you do in your museum. Right. Around the country. Other other ways in which museums are, history museums are addressing some of the issues that you brought up initially and some of the, um, some of the things you, you think your audiences need to know. Yeah? A lot of places are doing a more diverse um, presentation how, how the event or the site affects and has been affected by various cultures. Yes. So, so looking at different cultures and the impact of those cultures in that community. I'm, I know that that extends to often collections activities in, um, in history museums. Inviting diverse authorship of those programs as well. Okay, inviting diverse authorship of those programs. Marilyn? There's more interactivity within an exhibition so we don't just have passive people walking through the exhibit but engaging them in the ideas of the exhibition and what we can learn from it. Yeah, I, the more interactivity in the exhibit, and, and it didn't, this didn't come up so much when we had the first question about learning, but I would say that right now, um, 
you know, a lot of us know about Howard Gardner and different learning styles, and those have been pretty well uh, adopted and adapted into our museum settings. But we're, you know, neuroscience is, is moving ahead really fast, and so we're learning a lot more about how brains work. We're learning a lot more about the important role of curiosity and motivation in learning. Uh, we've learned from people like John Falk and Lynn Deerking that our visitors don't come to us as empty vessels. They have things already on their mind and in their heads. And there's an increasing amount of research about learning in an online environment and the relation, you know, the impact of social media and web-based learning on learning styles. Uh, and so I think that that is something that uh, we have to keep track of, and that's very much in the context of the 21st century skills work. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, and, and, and I think um, the proliferation of audio tours and I think increasingly customization of audio tours, you know, so that uh, you don't necessarily hear one voice, right? When you go through an exhibit or display, you might be able to choose different voices and, uh, and, and again, give you a sense that there are multiple perspectives on whatever the historical era or story that you're telling. Yes, Barbara. Uh, providing historical content Okay, you know, boy, it, it's so important. So providing historical context for, for current historical issues. And I just gave but one example, which was the, uh, the work that we're doing with dialogues on immigration, but there are so many of them. And we're, when, when I'm less funds, and we're really, really pleased to be able to do that. Okay, other comments before I move on? Basically, what you've done is You've helped define what we're talking about with our 21st century skills work. And uh, this is very shorthand. In the, in the publication that we put out, I think it's on page um, 23, starting on page 23, we have a much longer list of skills. But um, I can't remember all of them. So they, but, but these skills come from, they, they weren't dreamed up um, by us. Uh, really, in the last decade, there's been a very intentional and active conversation around the skills that our citizens and our communities need to survive and thrive in that sort of Tom Friedman uh, global society that we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the flat world that, that he wrote about. So, um, and these come from many, many places, and, and when IMLS did our work, we were, we were uh, basing our work on a conversation that had been largely happening outside the museum and library sector. So that is a conversation that was coming out of the Department of Labor. It was coming out of corporate America. It's been coming out of some of the foundations working in this country. And it's very much coming out of formal education, where there's a sense that, um, and, and we see this all the time when we look at tests. You know, of course, we always look at these test scores. and we're, the U.S. ranks on things like the PISA tests or these tests of basic, basic, basic skills. So our, and, and we talk about that more in, in um, our report. And the fact that the new technologies are so dominating our world today has just sort of hastened 
not only the changes in the global economy, but uh, hasten the urgency for, in our view, for museums and libraries to, to be part of this conversation. So when we started our project, we consciously used a language that might not be as familiar to us in the museum world, but we were doing this for two big reasons. One is to say to other policymakers, museums and libraries are part of the solution to the knowledge uh, challenges in the global knowledge uh, economy. And two, to say to colleagues in museums and libraries, uh, you know, you can be aware of this and maybe what we're providing you with with this, with this report and the self-assessment tool will be useful to you as you make your case in your community as an effective learning organization. So that's, that's why we did what, we, what we're doing. And you know, the three, th there's been some pushback around this 21st century skills work, especially in the formal education sector. Well, you're just talking about mushy things, you know, creativity, collaboration, communication, critical thinking. What about, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, history? Um, this is a both and situation. Nobody is saying that content isn't critical and content isn't important. But if you like, it's a slightly different framework to put around those uh, three R's and one H. And I think with that, I'm going to turn it over to Steve. Steve Bromwich has been with the uh, Maine Historical Society for nine years. I didn't know that he had a life before that, but he assures me he does because <laughs> that's how I've gotten to know him. And uh, again, I want to thank you for being so generous to just share a little bit about your project, which began long before we did this report, but which we kind of conveniently cherry-picked to use as one of our examples. Thanks, Marcia. Um, I thought I'd just give you a couple minutes of background about what we've been doing, kind of the, the programmatic focus of the main memory network, and then we can kind of talk more about it in the discussion section. Just for a little kind of background and context, Maine Historical Society is a private nonprofit as opposed to a state organization. Um, we've been around since the 1820s and been collecting that long. Um, but and we, so we've always had a state per, statewide purview, but it has really only been in the last 10 or 15 years that we've been able to make good on that and really kind of establish relationships out um, across the state with people who weren't in southern Maine or inclined to walk into a research library. Uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, the, the concept for the main memory network came up, and the original idea was, hey, this, the internet, what a, what a great way to share our collections. And the neat thing that happened uh, along the way, and I think what really distinguishes main memory, when we were building that basic website, we were able to do it in a way that would enable any historical society or other organization with a collection around the state to, to scan material in their collections and then use a web browser to upload and put it into the centralized database. Um, in, so, so pretty quickly we could see that this could be more um, about more than just us and MHS. In the early years, we had uh, a, a, a federal grant from the U.S. Department of Commerce that let us do a huge amount of outreach, and we were able to go around the state and train and recruit small historic, historical societies to participate, and we were, we were basically going out and saying, hey, there's a new resource here. We, it might help you share your collections with your community and beyond. We can provide the training and support. It won't cost you anything, and here, try it out. Um, so in the, it, we spent a lot of time kind of going out and training historical societies and observing the dynamics that they, you know, how they operated and what their relationships were within their community, what the opportunities they saw in main memory were, and the ways that it could kind of help solve things. Very quickly we saw, and so we've now been online for about 10 years, we have about 200 organizations around the state 
um, who are contributing. There's about 20,000 primary documents online. It's also very much grown into an online museum um, kind of environment where there's a lot of interpretive material that goes with it too. Uh, very quickly, we could see um, you know, some, some kind of common dynamics. One, a lot of the small historical societies really wanted to contribute and participate. Um, but they lacked uh, training. You know, they didn't have computers. They were only open during the warmer months of the year and a, a variety of other obstacles. And at the same time, we could see that the, the local schools had a great technical infrastructure. They had students who were very comfortable with technology. They had computers. They had online access. So in a number of places, we helped set up partnership between the schools and historical societies. And that kind of little kernel of putting, uh, putting the two together um, has really kind of flowered in, in recent years. And one of our primary focus has been really um, helping communities use local history, uh, use technology as an opportunity to mobilize around their local history. So the opportunity to, to work on digitization and other ex online exhibit projects has given the opportunities for historical societies to more actively engage and work with their schools and their public libraries. I think um, one of the keys to success has, again, been the empowerment of the communities. Had, had this model been different and we built our own website and went around the state telling people, or telling people we heard you hear, have great collections related to the revolution or about industrialization and asked them to give them to us, it just wouldn't have worked as the big statewide organization. But uh, the relationship has been really very balanced from the beginning. So we were, Main Memory was a tool where we could provide an infrastructure and our staff ex expertise and training and go out and give that to communities uh, at the same time so that their participation enabled them to kind of provide greater access to their collections within their communities and beyond. Many of these small places were really wanting to be valued and more integrated with the community, but they just didn't know how to go about it. So the initial appeal was getting their collections online. But the process of sitting down with training helped them increase their capacity, um, and, a, and a whole variety of kind of um, neat things kind of came out of that. Um, also as part of the process, you know, one of the things we've really discovered um, through this Maine Community Heritage Project over the last three years, we've worked with 16 communities around the state very intensively. And in each of those communities, uh, a team was put, the, the local community put together a team that included a historical organization, library, and school, and to really kind of test and figure out how the dynamics, what they had to offer. And one of the things we've been really discovering and working on is um, demonstrating the fact that there are m many more stakeholders in local history than just the historical organization. So the historical society has collections, they have um, folks who are very knowledgeable about the history of the community, what the collections made, um, but at the same time the public library provides public access and can get information about projects and help get projects going. The schools, as I mentioned, have technology resources. They're key consumers of the information. And then even town governments have been involved because they see this as a way to kind of increase the capacity of the community. But I think that this, the skills framework has been really useful because I think a lot of the things we've been doing through main memory and through local history are skills that all of our organizations do along the way anyway about education and how do you look at primary documents and how do you think about um, history and asking questions. Um, local history can have a bad rap as being something that you know stops at the municipal borders or is all about genealogy. So the process of getting people to, to look and talk about their local history is really an opportunity to get to, to encourage them to make broader connections between their community and the state and the rest of the country. Um, so the process of really bringing these groups together, what, they, what they've been learning to do is how to collaborate. Many of these organizations want to partner with each other but haven't had the opportunities and there are a lot of logistical 
boundaries for them doing so so we're helping them learn about each other's organizations what they might contribute and share to each other in this context of local history and then again kids are teaching elders at the historical society how to scan at the same time they're sitting and looking at historic photographs and talking about the history of the community a lot of really neat individual stories and projects have come out of that I think I'll leave it at that and we can come back to those okay so, okay I'm gonna just I'm going to actually turn it over now to, to Jody and Daryl. This is one of the charts that we have in the book that is, is just one way of thinking about some of the shifts uh, that, again, I hope you see as a kind of both and shift uh, instead of a either or shift. But I think it'd be really helpful to hear from Daryl and Jody about how the Kentucky Historical Society is taking something like this uh, report and uh, wrestling with it. Well, I think it's probably start or best to start by saying that we haven't effectively done this yet. We're, we're struggling with how to get it done. I think it's clear to us at the Kentucky Historical Society that uh, we're a state-funded entity. The economy is really bad. States are really struggling. So if we want to fight for our share of the funding, even though that may be dwindling, we have to be more than a place uh, that the government sees us we don't want the government to see us as basically a tourist trap, a place where people are going to stop and visit. We think we have to be central to the government's goals within the state, whether those are education, workforce development, uh, quality of life issues. And to do that, um, we think that 21st century skills are the way to go about getting there. Um, we also know that we don't know how to do that, and our staff is not prepared to do that. So this has been a discussion that we've been having for some time, and we've now put in our strategic plan, and uh, it's something we're gonna be working on pretty earnestly. Well, I would say, think it's safe to say that Jody and I have come to this meeting place uh, from very different angles, uh, and I think encountering uh, Marshall Simmel and 21st century skills is, is something that, again, we're, we're, we find ourselves on this common ground, but we've come at it from different places. Uh, after finishing up my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, I spent time at the Library of Congress, but most importantly for this discussion, at the National Science Foundation. By the time I arrived at the National Science Foundation, I was in the Education Division, working in the uh, Division of Evaluation. Uh, one of the things that I, I took away from that experience was, uh, one, a recognition of just how much money the scientists have been getting for all these years. <laughs> but, but thinking about what the scientists did with that money, and you know, uh, not to diss my colleagues in academia, uh, academic historians, I am an academic historian by training and by virtue, and remain one and remain committed to that. But historians have not done a very good job of telling the world who they are, what they're about, and what they do. I think we all uh, know that children by the age of four, five, six years old have a pretty good idea of a scientist working away in the, uh, in the lab, some, they, they're conducting experiments. We may not understand what they are, but we do have some sense of, of what they're doing. And we have some sense of that somehow the kinds of uh, knowledge that they're creating and the judgments that, are, that they're making, the evaluation of evidence leading up to that, that somehow we see that as valid. But I don't think our society in general one has, has a real good sense of what historians do. Uh, and, and we don't have a good sense of how historians arrive at, at, their, at their judgments. Historians, I like to say, do not uh, sell opinion. They sell uh, historical truths, historical judgments, historical interpretations that are founded on the critical method. And so this is where I think we, we entirely dovetail with 
with uh, the critical thinking component of 21st century skills. Uh, when I think about what I would like the world to know about what I do as a historian, you know, look at what critical thinking and problem solving skills are. Reasoning skills, inductive and, and deductive thinking, systems thinking, uh, my own work dabbles in social network analysis. So, you know, can people, can we find a way to get a third grader to think about systems thinking? I think that's an interesting challenge. Uh, making judgments and decisions, analyzing and evaluating evidence, uh, evaluating claims as people in the 21st century are bombarded with information on the internet. Are we going to be able to uh, convey the kind of skills that historians use every day to help people evaluate the claims that they are encountering in their own daily lives? Uh, historians synthesize, they make connections uh, between information and arguments. Uh, they interpret that evidence and data and they draw conclusions. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting to uh, get a set of fourth graders and present them with two different kinds of analysis of the same data and, and sort of see how they think through that. Uh, historians not only try to solve problems, but they also, through that analysis and the painstaking research that they do, they discover problems that have not yet been resolved. And so, you know, when I think about what historians do and, and what I'd like the world to know, I think you know, this is exactly where we are. But the problem we face at the Kentucky Historical Society is, gee, where to start? How, how in the world do we do that? Because what I'd like to say is, you know, we can't leapfrog over our institutional limitations and presume that we are ready to teach these skills to the general public, to the people that come into our, to our museums, to the people that we're gonna encounter out in the world in our programming. So, so I think we have a kind of a prior problem and that is how do we as an institution grapple with the fact that uh, you know, when we look at our staff, we have wonderful committed staff, uh, but, but it's also uneven in its skill levels. And so we, we have to think very seriously about how we raise those skill levels uh, so that we have folks on our staff who you know, they understand what the historical discipline is and what these things are. So that before we begin to, to presume to uh, create programs or create those learning experiences, uh, we ourselves have to have a good command of that. So um, we don't really have a good answer at this moment, but these are just to kind of let you in on this is what we're struggling with, and, uh, and uh, maybe I'll just stop there. And we can well, we also have some external forces in, in, in the state. Um, Kentucky has not, as of last week, adopted 21st century skills. We have a social studies test, but it's completely optional whether teachers want to take that or not. Uh, we're looking at developing, well, actually by December, they're supposed to have a new set of social studies standards out, but it was unfunded, so it probably isn't going to happen. Um, so at the Kentucky Council for Social Studies Conference the last few years, there's been a discussion around this issue, and what seems to be coming out of a lot of our teachers is, uh, it sounds like science, uh, or, well, we do social studies, it's civics, like how to vote not really history and we're losing that kind of historical perspective i think in the curriculum so you know we get those fourth graders who want to come and study kentucky history and they run through the museum and they do some we're getting them to slow down we're, we're introducing elements that uh, we're trying to address these 21st century skills uh, we've introduced a, a thing called history lab it's a very generic name and we've been kind of trying to test things that will stop the students from running through. 
Uh, we've done, uh, it's, an, it's an iterative process. We've, uh, we've had some successes, we've had some failures. Uh, we've tried to get students to look at elements of our, component, our, our components of our exhibits in a more critical way, to, to go back into there, to work together on problem solving um, issues. And um, I, I think that it's, it's starting, starting to happen. Um, again, I'd go back to uh, one of Daryl's comments. I, I think we're trying to gel around some of these issues and figure out how each of the components of our organization fit in and contribute to those things. Um, we had a, a discussion just earlier today um, about uh, titles, and uh, you know it's it, it's interesting to me that we we have an education division. We're an educational institution. We all do education. So, um, how are we all contributing to developing a 21st century skills infrastructure in our building? Uh, because it does include all of us to do that. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, let me, and, and we're going to open it up now for conversation. I just wanted to say that. Um, I think what Daryl and Jody are saying is so important and so true and one of the purposes that we had in doing this self-assessment tool and there was, uh, you'll see in the back inside back cover some of the people who were part of our task force and we wrestled with this for a year. We also did five listening sessions at different library and museum conferences so something over about 125 people also weighed in on this document during its creation. But it's not just about, um, it includes, but it's not limited to uh, K-8 or K-12. Uh, and it's not just about programs either. What, what we recognized is if you really are going to move forward in this 21st century skills arena, it affects everything, just as, as Jody and Daryl are saying. Uh, who you hire, what your organization chart looks like, who your partnerships are with, uh, how you integrate your online and on-site environments. Uh, a really, really important column in this heat map is access because we're talking about intellectual access, we're talking about physical access, technological access, and, and I, when, I, when I say access, I'm really talking about inclusion. And inclusion includes who are the stories, you know, who, who are represented in your stories, who are the partners you're working with? On another page in this report, we have a community learning scan where we suggest that you think about the skills and competencies and resources you bring to your community's learning needs. But what you might start with is a community learning meeting where lots of people get together, lots of different museums, libraries, and other organizations to talk about what your community's learning needs are. And again, lifelong learning. So we've been doing this in workshops that we've been having around the country, and we usually start with a report on the state of the community, often issued by a community foundation or United Way, uh, which basically uh, builds on what the community is saying from the bottom up around um, what the community's learning needs are. And then we say, okay, what can something like this do to help uh, organizations work collaboratively to address those needs. But I, and I also just want to go back to the other point about this is, there are some implications here that are major shifts for, for jobs, for positions, for allocation of resources in, a, in an organization. And even at IMLS, we just, uh, the last week in August, we did a four, four hour workshop about this and we got a lot of staff suggestions about things that they want to change. <laughs> 
if IMLS is going to be a 21st century skills organization, and we're trying to move forward on some of those things. And they involve uh, uh, the ability to lead from different parts of our organization, not be hierarchical. Uh, the the uh, training needs around things like creativity and innovation, a different way of rewarding and recognizing employees. So, um, you know, it, the, I think it has to go in lots of different directions. I don't know if you wanted to say anything, Steve, before we open it up to some questions or conversation. Um, you know, I, I, I think comment further comments come out of the conversation. Okay. So, I mean, this is a chance to, we really want to open this up I, and hear what you're thinking about this. If some of you have been trying to use this in an institutional setting and, and tearing your hair out, you know, it's always good to know. I know of some museums that have taken the, that heat map and they jiggle columns around and they put their own institutional name on it and they've used it with their boards for strategic planning. Again, this is not a cookbook. You don't take the step-by-step step and then the souffle comes out of the oven. Uh, but it's, uh, it's designed to be a document that is only going to be as good as, um, as it is for you at your institution at this stage of your institutional's evolution. Yes? Yeah, thank you. But and that's and that's critical to this this work, which is you know different two way communication. So thank you. Yeah. Yes. No. You have oh. a, yeah. Sure. Oh, I'm Sherilyn Young with the Cherokee Nation, and uh, since you're new, uh, fairly new, Marshall, maybe you don't know. With our basic grant and our enhancement grant through IMLS, we did uh, nationwide. That's like 14 counties.
you. Yeah. Chris, did you? You would appear, Stephen? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, that uh, this is advocating a little what the arts community started doing in the mid-80s with discipline based arts education and then turning the argument into arts as economic engine. Uh, and that has been so effective for the fine arts organizations across the spectrum mm -hmm. in demonstrating their worth, even though we know there's a trinket court that does it, it is its own demonstration. Uh, but in demonstrating the worth to the larger society and thus uh, being worthy of investment uh, by the community. I have heard you sideways a couple times, Marcia, advocate for this uh, during the past couple of days that we need to start making our own case uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a really deliberate and specific and consistent way uh, across the board uh, to get the attention of people who do not think in our language. Yes, well said. Well, I think in a bridge between those comments, you know, I think one of the things is, you know, technology provides is creates opportunities. You know, there's a lot of being wowed by neat internet projects and stuff. But what we found is really the technology and the local history are just the opportunity to connect people in the community. So um, while initially that's the topic, that's the content area where people are convening around. Um, it's the process of connecting and the interaction and really the learning to share resources. You know, again, the three organizations we've been working with, the schools, the libraries, and the historical societies, they've all got all kinds of mutual interests, but they tend to not talk because everybody is consumed by their own world, their own economic needs. And so if you get together and say, hey, let's talk around digitizing something on local history, it's the opportunity to find out what the needs and the interests of the teacher is, you know, and what are they trying to accomplish and how can they benefit from working with our collections, you know, and what's, what, what are the aspirations of the library. And so the process of kind of planning your local history project, I think one of, another neat dynamic of main memory is it looks different in every community. So it's flexible enough, as any project you could design, design around technology could be, to, to first and foremost acknowledge whatever the local interest is. So if we have a town bicentennial coming up or some other topic du jour, you can build a project around it. And then you can create a, a digitization project or something like that that kind of gets at all of the needs and, and the interests of the partners. So again, some communities might just want to digitize that Civil War collection or some individual set of photographs that are the pride and joy and everybody really responds to. Um, and the kind of, we found the, the conversations you can have around that lead to all sorts of kind of, uh, of, of positive things. But each of the projects, one of the first things we kind of try to emphasize is project planning. So, you know, there's a tendency to like, oh, let's build a website and we'll include all of these different pieces. But bringing people together, understanding what their real interests are, you know, and again, for some teachers, they just want to, they want to, you know, some communities want to do something short and finite that's a month long that touches briefly on their history. Others' projects are very technology focused. Others are really about student engagement and getting them involved in civic issues. And so, but I think the first step to any of this is project planning, getting people talking and understanding what their interests are, what their limits are, how, many, how much time they have to put into it. So the kind of the foundations of collaboration and resource sharing and saying, hey, we might not have a computer or an internet access, but our school and our library does. And if we could take our collections there or come up with a, a strategy, all of a sudden our organizations are closer. For some of the, the pilot community, this pilot phase of the Maine Community Heritage Project, we worked with these communities on, for, on a year-long basis. And one of the goals of that was to really kind of develop something we were calling the habits of partnership. So by working together for a year to build this website, which forced them to kind of man, you know, figure out project management and time, 
to come up with goals and to kind of have dialogues about, geez, what, what stories in our community are important to tell um, and that sort of thing. You know, they spend a year getting to know each other and the hope is that that will serve them down the road, whether it's another history project, whether it's an economic development or tourism or a creative economy kind of um, issue. So giving them the infra infrastructure of um, collaboration. You know, I think also to make the 21st century skills less scary is something to embrace. I think most of our organizations intrinsically are doing 50 or 75 percent of this and it's really, you know, it's kind of like learning results in that it's a framework that if you can articulate what you're doing and the value of it to a whole new set of audiences, you know, it increases your value in the community and your ability to be at the table for different conversations. So it's really another way to look at it is, is, is note all the things you do along these lines initially and build and look for the places where you can expand. Absolutely, and the, the sort of online uh, assessment tool we have, which is very quick, it's very quick and easy to do um, exercise, just shows you where you're already strong, you know, where you're already in the hottest part of the heat map and where you might want to be doing some more work. And again, it's not prescriptive. Uh, but, and we're also going to be doing a, a webinar what date is September 20, September 30th? 29th. 29th. We're going to be doing a webinar for our, the first uh, webinar uh, that's free to anybody who wants to sign up on um, about the 21st century skills with a couple of the museum directors who've gotten deeper into this water. And uh, we're going to be doing some, uh, a much more robust um, website as well. We've already got a lot of resources online. I just want to, I know there's some other comments, but I, I have a quote that comes from the mayor of Guilford, Maine, who, his name is Tom Goulette, who participated in this project. And I think it says uh, in his words uh, what several of you have been talking about. Uh, he wants to thank um, the Maine Historical Society for working with them. Uh, and he says, history will live on in Guilford in no small part because of the new bond created between the old and the young the establishment and the students. Interest has been sparked, common ground discovered, and unity of purpose achieved. Uh, quite lofty results, and yet the components had already been in, always been in place. We had a library, we had a historical society, we had a school, an economic development board, and obviously a town office. But it was this project that showed us the interdependence among all the separate groups and caused us to work together for the benefit for all. Thank you for opening our eyes to see what we already possessed. So I think that it really underscores what several of the comments have been. <coughs> Again, so if you move this into an advocacy place, you're basically taking these stories, uh, talking about these bonds, and then you perhaps using some new or different language, depending on who you're talking to, uh, to make the case for what you're trying to do and for additional resources. Uh, someone, you had a question. Didn't you have a question or a comment? Yeah. Well, I was, this may have already been answered. I was wondering if you all came across any resistance from some of the local historic groups or, um, or maybe even from some academics who, who don't like to relinquish their material. And I work for a state agency and, and we get that. We get both of that sometimes. We have academics who work um, with our small program and they just hold on to their information um, and are not necessarily concerned about it being relevant. Um, and then on the 
Well, we've been very lucky in that we can go where the interest is. You know, there's, I think there's about 225 historical societies around Maine. You know, there's a ton. Maine's really into its history. Um, and of the, our 200 plus contributing partners, some of those are those historical societies, but it's also interesting, you know, fire departments with historical collections, hospitals, and all sorts of other kind of archives. But we've been able to go, we haven't twisted anybody's arm to participate. We've put out there, here are the opportunities, you know, to increase access and do a number of these other things. And, it's, and some people have concerns about copyright, about their building getting broken into, that, you know, we talk them through. And some, get comfortable with the idea and decide that the benefits outweigh the, the risks. Others are never going to do it. You know, some of the more resistance you get is in some of those mid-level organizations who have their own aspirations and ambitions and aren't quite ready to kind of be part of, of something bigger. Um, so again, we're, we're, we have, we're fortunate in that we haven't had to twist people's arms to participate because again, they see the benefits. I think so much about this is increasing capacity. So they see, you know, they're getting training on technology. I think the access thing can't be underestimated. So many, you know, so many historical organizations, as we all know, want to be valued by their community. They want people to use their resources, know what they're about, and support them by becoming members, by, you know, doing all sorts of other things with them. So the so I think so much of this about this and the collaboration is really kind of getting value, being valued for what you have to contribute to your um, community. On the, the bit about scholars, we really haven't had that resistance. Um, it, it's been less about this project, but um, Maine Memory also has a very interesting interpretive framework where we are, I mean, you think about the opportunities of curating online exhibits and pulling together interpretive materials across all these collections. You know, if you do a quick search on the Civil War, you might get a thousand documents that come from all these different places. So that creates some interesting curatorial opportunities, both for the small local places to be included in broader interpretive projects in a way that just wasn't practical before, and for them to interact with scholars. And there's lots of really neat dynamics where we or Main Memory can provide some broad context for the local stories and collections and um, Tomorrow we're doing a session and one of uh, the university professors participated who's helped us with that and it's created really neat partnerships between her, her university and the community and the community organizations they've been working with. So it's, you know, more material to work with. So we haven't had that particular, you know, academic studies. And, and I wonder whether Daryl and Jody can talk a little about that because, um, you know, some of, the, some of the tensions or discussions can happen as they're alluding, you know, within an institution, as an institution grapples with this as uh, it, it's in, in strategic plans. Well, I was just thinking, actually, uh, from a couple of com comments back about, um, you know, one of the questions we wrestle with and uh, embedded in our new strategic plan, which we've just wrapped up within the last six months, about a year and a half long process, has uh, fundamentally, I think, embedded the idea that this institution is about history and education. Now, what we haven't come to yet is exactly what does that mean in real practical terms. Also embedded in that strategic plan is the idea, I think, probably for the first time in this institution's history, would, would be to say that we are going to really focus in on particular key target audiences. And so I think what you're getting at is, well, by defining who our target audiences are, uh, in, I believe we are looking at essentially educators, and we define that to be K through postgraduate because we deal with graduate students and faculty as well as fourth grade teachers, that whole gamut, and <coughs> enthusiasts. And within that, 
there may be some groups that in the past could simply call us up and we would pay inordinate amount of attention to a, to perhaps a group that you know is, is is a legitimate valid group but we have limited resources and how are we going to how are we going to target those resources so we haven't yet seen how this is going to play out but i could you know i think we can see on the horizon that this is is something we're going to have to grapple with i don't know if you have already encountered the things that you're doing in education no i i i haven't encountered a lot of resistance from academics um i, I found that when we work with them uh in kentucky and in ohio a, a lot of uh you can end some of i think the troubles you're alluding to by establishing right up front what you're expecting to get out of that relationship and and draw very clear uh, responsibilities and boundaries around that. Um, working with local historical societies, um, we have a, a field service program and um, have been very lucky through the Lincoln Bicentennial to have worked with a lot of these organizations and developed a pretty good rapport with them. Um, I, I don't think that in Kentucky we have that uh, relationship, and I see a few local history organizations here. Christy, maybe you can speak a bit to this. I don't think you have that competitiveness between the Kentucky Historical Society and the local historical societies. Um, at other institutions I've worked at that has existed with certain institutions and in the larger organizations, um, I know uh, when you talk with folks who do a lot of field services, uh, the Field Service Alliance, uh, a lot of those members are here today. Um, I, I think that can exist, but I, I, again, I think a lot of that is going out relationship building and I think when they see as, as Steve said that it's it's nothing you're trying to force on anybody it's not all about you it's about the broader history community I, I don't know that you're gonna get as much resistance as, as, as you might expect yes I wonder how um, I mean, maybe it hasn't happened yet but how that's gonna relate internally with your curators um, if, the, if the goal is uh, you know there's an old vanguard of curators out there and if the goal is happening right now in the midst of the recession and budget cuts, we have um, done a cross-training program and we're hmm. getting everybody out on the floor and everybody has to deal with the public in, mm -hmm. in the galleries and in our spaces. And where we, again, I don't know that we ever had that resistance, but where that might have existed, I think for a curator or an archivist or someone who may not necessarily be out with the public as much as, say, the education staff, to be out there and see how people use the uh, exhibits to talk with them about history, I think it changes your perspective. Um, I, I've actually found that a lot of our curators being out on the floor, uh, I think they enjoy it, maybe I'm deluding myself. Um, <laughs> especially when we have you know, the, the visitor that comes in and wants to know some obscure topic in Kentucky history, and I gotta tell you, I'm not gonna know what it is, but we call on Andy, our senior curator, and he's out there right away talking with them. So, you know, I, I think if you take it from that visitor perspective and understand what they're trying to get out of you, um, I, again, I think you're gonna head off a lot of that resistance that may exist. I think a lot of that resistance will be built on perceptions that don't actually exist, and the, the problem will be to break down those perceptions. And, and I really think that everybody get on board. Maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but uh, um, 
we're on the same field. We're in the field to do the same thing. And uh, I think this is a way to get to it. I would think of being Pollyannish because we encountered a similar situation when I started inviting community curators in to look at the collection and publish and talk about things. And our curatorial services staff were very resistant because they felt I would diss them. I would say if your scholarship isn't good enough, then I was all about let's build community partnerships and become more relevant than we are now. And once they uh, said, I'm sorry about your opinions, but we're looking for And once they started visiting, with Lincoln exhibition that we did a few years back, where we were pretty committed to taking on what, in the environment that we were dealing with, were some pretty touchy issues, the place of slavery and the Civil War in Kentucky. The, uh, the realities of local violence and guerrilla warfare in Kentucky as part of that experience. Uh, the scholarship is, you know, for two decades now, showing us that not just in places like Kentucky, but in the South and in the North, Local communities very, very much divided, very much uh, at odds with each other. So how do you how do you deal with it? So I think the the route that we took in our exhibition it was very it, you know it was a very top down you know I, I had done a lot of research my colleagues we we all come together you know so the question of the research wouldn't be any different the scholarship wouldn't be any different but the question then becomes if you're going to then create a learning experience that gets at comparative analogical skills. Uh, the weighing of evidence, all of those things that we're sort of talking about that are the components of critical thinking and what historians do. So the curatorial side in terms of the knowledge base that you're drawing from is not any different. It's what do you do with that? What is the, you know, can you create a interactive and online or you know, an experience in that museum setting that presents people with uh, sort of a puzzle that walks them through uh, that kind of thinking? And you know, that could end up being a, a much more powerful experience for the visitor than I think what we came up with, even though I think it was a pretty good I think it could have been better. But Thank you. I, well, there's the gentleman at the back, yes, and then uh, Sherilyn. I have a little bit different perspective on this. I was, was the managing curator for a fairly large museum, eight curators that were responsible to me. And I implemented a program where once a month the curators had to be working two or three hours in the visitor services desk and then being on the floor responsive to visitors on the high volume days, Saturdays in particular. And uh, I found resistance from the curators primarily because it took them away from production responsibilities uh, in the development of exhibition programs and other things that were, they were responsible within uh, their regular schedule. So this is a museum with a very active exhibition program so that was one thing. Where I found the most resistance was from the docents in the museum, who saw the curators as impeding on their turf, <laughs> responsible for those Saturday tours. And what we did is we created a curator's choice tour, where the curator could choose to tour anything in the museum that they wanted to share with visitors, and 
thing where people had to not sign up for it, but be at a certain place at a certain time. And we ended up having to scrap the program because of the doses. Um, and so there, there may not be resistance from your curators, but uh, it's likely there's resistance someplace within every institution. Yeah, I, you know, I've been in so many conversations in the last couple of months around silos and you know trying to breaking break down silos and there are silos of course everywhere um, uh, and I've worked with volunteers in many institutions too so I'm glad you you brought that up but I think what we're saying is that if we really start with uh, the end in mind and the end in mind is the uh, you know engagement with and learning needs of our publics and our communities uh, hopefully we can come up with some new ways of, of reaching those goals and also acknowledge where some of those silos are impeding us reaching those goals and those go within institutions across institutions and you know as uh, as Christopher said I mean you know there are often there are other many institutions in a community that have uh, a serious learning responsibilities that they acknowledge that may or may not even be a museum or library but uh, may have special gifts and special strengths that a museum or library can latch onto and partner with in, in search of uh, achieving a, a more common goal. And in these days of really, really lean resources, uh, you know, again, I would argue that those collaborations are they're absolutely necessary, but they take work. So they, there are those trade-offs. Sherilyn, did you want to say something else? Oh, I just, I wanted to, tell you all about a project we did at the Cherokee Museum about six months ago in exhibit because we looked um, at the Cherokee Heritage Center at the museum and we weren't really engaging our whole community, our community, our first communities, the Cherokee community, the citizens in the 14 county area, and then the general public that visits there. But so what we did, I'm just looking at your 21st list of uh, getting the community and getting it audience driven and getting them all engaged in it. Um, we, didn't, we reached out, and, and it's part of a longer-range plan to get people to start bringing in their objects, historical objects, and let us get those digitized for our digital collection, and get the people to start thinking about the museum as a place where uh, is the history. But we reached out, and we said we'd like three generations uh, within your family to take one of the 89 characters in our syllabary, your family select which one and you could do it with historical dates or all kinds of things related in your community but we said that people came in and eventually we had 89 different sets of families and generations come in and we said okay you create the syllabary this character out of the syllabary with your three generations or sometimes it was only two still remaining and you can do a collage you can do a photo you can do a painting you can do beadwork you can do it in clay you can Whatever, but let us see your three-generational approach to this topic, to this character in the syllabary, what it means. Yeah. And so you can do this. So it involved in everybody <coughs> came to the exhibit and everybody had ownership in it and it started bringing people from the community in to realize we have a stake in the history and we can't and they want us here. So think about that as created by, and that was funded by the Annenberg Foundation. Um, so, you know, look at all those different places that are up for creative adventures like that, but it really served the purpose of doing this, and you could do it with you know, a myriad of topics that work in your own area, but it, it got all those who had something historical to contribute.
Great. I think, the, I think that also, you know, some of the, the conversation about curatorial control or ego or whatever it may be kind of echoes some of the Web 2.0 conversations about how much control, if that's the way you choose to articulate, to give up. And I think in that discussion, as is this one, it's all about, you know, we all have educational missions and programs and things we're trying to accomplish. So when we're asking for interaction and contribution and involvement from the community, whether it's in a physical exhibit or otherwise, it's knowing what, what we're asking for, you know, and whether it's to provide stories or collections or, con or con other content that flushes out what we're able to provide as a museum because we have certain collections on a topic that point in this direction, but what else do you have? You know, so it's, it's asking the questions and getting their involvement in a way that either there's an educational process that they're learning the historical process a little, or what they might have to share kind of expands the richness of the exhibit as opposed to it, you know, in some way being threatening. You know, we're all looking for more ways to under, understand our history and kind of work with it in more creative, dynamic ways. And, you know, it can be framed, I think, as a plus, but we just have to know what our programmatic goals are and make sure the interaction is, it's, you know, is designed to fit with that. And, you know, this brings me to what uh, Daryl was talking about earlier uh, around evidence and being at the NSF. And uh, in the science community, uh, the science education community, as, as many of you know, uh, there's been a lot of work around what are outcomes, what, are, you know, what can we show for, uh, for our work. And it's not just about grades. I mean, they're looking at, at other mm -hmm. evidence uh, and, and evidence indicators. And, when you take a kind of community approach, uh, that allows you to work with other partners and come up with uh, different indicators of what success might be, where each institution is making a contribution to a set of indicators that might be t pegged directly to you know, a larger issue. I know the um, head of the public library in Columbus, Ohio, for example, is doing amazing work with early learning. Uh, and most of the work he's doing is around, it's not around books or um, programs even in the library, but it's around, it's A, based on research, so that's one thing. It's kind of based on some research, and Sherilyn talked about a, a community study. I mean, there's, there are a lot of ways to get some research that helps you launch a project, so you have a starting point. Uh, and then it's, um, it's, acting on that research so that the programs are really dealing with mothers and caregivers of early learners who and linking the early learning and sharing and giving away of books with uh, food and so a lot of these programs are in churches and um, in conjunction with local food banks so again you know sometimes I think you think about your mission what you have to offer and what those resources can be and what they can contribute to that, that larger public good. So I think we're, and we're, especially I think in the history area, that we don't necessarily always have those same practices around evaluation, impact uh, that have been, um, you know, kind of forced on a lot of science museums by the NSF and some of its work. But um, even there, I think people, we're still grappling with effective measures of, in, of impact. And um, that's something that IMLS is doing is going to be much more aggressively working on even around our grants so that we can do a better job of aggregating the reports that you all submit from our grants 
to make a statement to our authorizers about the impact of, of what your work is. So that's something, we, we've just hired a new evaluation officer uh, who comes on board October 12th, so I'm kind of counting those days. And that's one of the things we'll be working with him on and that he will be working with you on to, uh, for us to all do a better job together. Daryl. And I'll just say that one of the things, because uh, when I was at that one of the things that we did a lot of work, and I was in the evaluation office, and it was to work with program officers on, on uh, particularly at the project level. And one of the things that we always <laughs> liked to convey was that one of the real true benefits of, of engaging in evaluation is to make it much more intentional about the outcomes that you're, you're trying, so that you're working in a way backward. You want to get to a certain outcome, and you're not going to presuppose what that audience is going to do or not do. You're not going to presuppose, but you're going to do that work up front uh, to help you get there. And that evaluation ultimately is about improvement. It's not about a thumbs up, thumbs down. That ultimately, it's about learning more about what you're doing and whether or not you're doing it right. Great, thank you. Okay, and then I think this is going to be the last coming up before we. Close. Okay, I'm just th thinking again in, in thinking about the approaching 21st century skills and not seeing it as an overwhelming need to transform your organization. It strikes me that trying it out on project bases, you know, take off particular programs or activities you have and test the notions and, you know, the places you have the best chance for success, refine them perhaps in these lights and then use that as a foundation as opposed to trying to, again, do something completely turn your organization upside down. Yeah, I, I think that that's very, very important. You know, bite off something um, doable first, and then celebrate. Celebrate your success. That's always really important, too. Any other comments before we close? Okay, well, I hope you all have a wonderful happy hour and a wonderful <laughs> dinner. And uh, if you have any other questions, you know, we're happy at IMLS to answer you. We've got Catherine Moss here, Allison Freeze, Sandra Narva, Allison Bowles. So, we're all here to, to help you. And actually, IMLS is willing to fund your projects. If you've got projects, specific projects in any of our grant categories uh, around 21st century skills and your strategic planning work, your program work, your training work, uh, talk to us. We have, we have monies available. Thank you so much, everybody.